The Pulse of Portland, a public affairs program of KKPZ with Paul Van Sickle. Thank you for listening to KKPZ 1330 The Truth. I'm Paul Van Sickle and excited to have a group of guests today on the program and reading directly from the back of their book that they have written together. It it says this, evidence suggests that Christian church has entered a historic transition in its relationship to the broader culture and what some are calling post-Christendom. The church no longer holds an advantage point in many places. Some Christians lament this development. Others believe that this disruptive change provides an opportunity for the church's renovation. The book is called The Marks of the Missional Church, Ecclesial Practices for the Sake of the World, and have the three co-authors with me today. One in studio, Jason Veach, who's the pastor of Eden Community here in Portland, Oregon. And then joining us from around the country today, we have Libby Tedder Hugus, who is in Casper, Wyoming, planning a missional community there. And we also have Keith Schwanz joining us from Kansas City as well. So uh, thank you all of you for making time in all of your different time zones to join us here today KKPZ. Thanks for having us. Let's go ahead and talk just a little bit about this book, and I'll I'll let you guys uh, jump in and we'll talk about how you all got involved and came together. But again, the book is called The Marks of the Missional Church, Ecclesial Practices for the Sake of the World. You can get it at book retailers as well as on storyandpress.com. It was also a a 2015 Illumination Book Award winner, which is an award program for for books from independent publishers. Uh, They got the Gold Award for the top book in the ministry and mission category, which is fantastic. And Jason, since you're sitting right here next to me, why don't you talk a little bit about yourself and your contribution and how this kind of all came together as, as a book. Yeah, I am a graduate of Nazarene Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, and that's kind of how I got connected with Kishwans and Libby as well, sharing a history there. But uh, I'm now a, a pastor here in Portland, Oregon, uh, planted Eden Community Church of the Nazarene. And, you know, my desire and, and what drove me to participate in, in this book was really the practical challenges of ministry in um, this culture in this day. Mm-hmm. And I have a real uh, kind of passion for trying to discern with the body of Christ, what does it look like to be the church in a world that is changing so quickly? And um, particularly here in Portland, for me, uh, that's extremely applicable. And uh, But to do so in such a way that uh, we don't neglect the past, but really draw from it uh, in life-giving ways. And mm-hmm. so that's what I, I really was, that's what drew me to, to participate uh, with this project with my with my colleagues and friends. And Libby, you, you also help in the church planting there in, in Casper, Wyoming, and you've contributed to some other books as well. What was it about this project that, that really drew you in? So I am residing, currently residing in Casper, Wyoming, and I kind of have made my home over here in the windy, wild western frontier. And I have the, the pleasure and the honor of helping to lead a new missional community here in town called The Table, and we are a community for doubters and disciples together. And I think what really has drawn me into the missional church conversation as a whole, and then why I was so excited about this particular project, um, I think it was kind of a combination of both intuition and experience, Um, you know, testing kind of the underpinnings of what made up this framework for living out faith um, amidst the, the church and the community. It was something that really aligned with how I've experienced God so far and how my community is is working to do the same thing here in our very kind of particular local neighborhood. And um, in observing others who are are pursuing the reconciling love of God, um, kind of missional theology has made the most sense. And, um, you know, just I'm honored to call both of these co-authors friends and 
And um, as Keith kind of proposed it, it was something that I jumped right on board with because I think it's just something that will make a difference for the church um, at large. So I was excited to, to be asked and, and to see how it all kind of came together and, and what's come out of it. Keith, is, as Libby mentioned, you know, it's kind of your project idea. You've written books. You've contributed to several others. You're an educator at the seminary and, and started the story in press as well. Where did this idea come from that you then reached out to these two? I started in pastoral ministry in Portland in the, the late 1970s. It has been very enriching to me, after more than 20 years of pastoral ministry experience, to live for the last 10 or 12 years with folks as I have been engaged in graduate theological education. I started Story and Press in 2013 because of my, my deep conviction that we have young adults like Jason and Libby who are committed to the gospel, they love the church, they are able to articulate it in new ways that I didn't hear when I was their age. And, and so I started Story and Press uh, with the intent to try to help people like this begin to articulate a new way forward for the church. Hmm. And talk about the reasons, really, for that new way forward. What does that look like in kind of the purpose of this book? I just turned 61, and I suppose I am entering that stage of life when I am beginning to look back and reflect on, on life. I'm asking questions uh, of myself and uh, have what i done, has it had meaning? Um, so I, I recognize that I am in that kind of uh, position, that, that life stage. And it, it just occurs to me that our culture has changed radically since 1977 when I started pastoral ministry. And the Church has changed. And as I look back on it, um, I can see uh, times when I really believed it was my responsibility to make something happen. I'm the pastor of this Church, and I've got to make this thing grow. Mm -hmm. And the people who were the examples that were held up to us by the evangelical community, by denominational leaders, they were people of charisma, they were entrepreneurs. And somehow I believe that if I was going to be uh, successful and effective as a pastor, somehow I had to be like them, and I had to be the entrepreneur, and I had to be, be this charismatic personality. And all the time I was uneasy with that, because that's not me. The missional uh, church conversation that I have been part of the last several years has really freed me up because missional theology begins with the understanding that it is God's mission. And our theology says that, that God graciously is out in front of anything that we are doing as followers of Christ. And so it's not necessary for me to initiate these new things. It's necessary for me to be part of a, a community of God's people, and we need to be quiet enough that we begin to discern what God is doing in this world. And so, really, what we're trying to do in this book is to attempt to, uh, to help the Church respond to God, respond to the mission that, that God is, uh, has already initiated, and to somehow bring our practices into alignment with that, to begin to embody the Gospel for the sake of the world, to participate in what God has already started. Mm. And, and Libby, what are some of the ways that, as Keith just mentioned, the practical alignment, what, what does some of that look like in some of the ways we practice? Yeah, so bouncing off of this idea that, that Keith raised for us so well about kind of this 
massive tectonic shifting of the plates underneath the church that we've all kind of been feeling and sensing and wondering about. We wanted to kind of help create um, a very practical tool for naming the practices and the rhythms that the church can live into so that it can align itself with God's mission. And so a way that we decided to do that in this book was to name um, the Nicene Creed as a particular structure um, in which to kind of hang our hats with this missional theology. So, you know, some people might not be familiar with what the Nicene Creed is. It's basically a creed is a, is a really concise way to state a doctrinal truth. And um, the basis of that word comes from the Latin credo, which literally means I believe. So a creed then gives us an opportunity to state what we believe in a very succinct way. And so we structured this book around the four marks of the Church that were named in the Nicene Creed, um, which the Nicene Creed, along with the Apostles' Creed, are probably two of the most universal creeds used in the Christian Church today. And, And the Nicene Creed was developed in order to help mediate the debate that was going on in um, the third century about the deity of Christ. And so Christian bishops came together and they adopted this creed as a way to help mediate that conflict. And then a couple years later, well, actually several decades later, um, they came back with a more extended version of the Nineteen Creed that then stated these four marks. And it says in there, in the creed, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So as we were brainstorming about the content of this book, Marks of the Missional Church, we drew from the suggestion of these two guys who are known as missiologists. They focus on mission within the spectrum of theology, um, Daryl Guter and George Hunsberger, who suggested that we reverse that original order, mm. because that kind of helps to restore mission to our understanding of who the Church is. And so in our book, we begin with... Um, we begin with um, apostolic, and then we go to Catholic, then we go to holy and one. And then this kind of helps us put into perspective what's going on in this shift that we're all experiencing and give, gives us really strong handholds as a church um, to see this change that we're experiencing, not as something to be fearful, but as an opportunity, um, something that the church gets to say, hey, how do we respond to this change in a faithful way to who God is calling us to be in our world by putting into practices um, rhythms that reflect its nature. I would like to connect back with something Jason said just a few minutes ago. And one of the things that happens uh, since we start with these four marks from the Nicene Creed is that we are going back to the, the tradition of the Church. And I think it's very appropriate in this time when there is so much change around us in culture it is, it, this, the best thing that we can do is to come back to those core issues that we have as Christians and then begin working from that core out as we seek to find new expressions of church in this very changed uh, environment. And so uh, I just wanted to, to highlight that again. What we are suggesting is that we be the church in the historic understanding of the church, but we try to spin that out then in some new and and creative and fresh ways. And that's why, you know, some people may be confused in understanding what uh, missional church is all about, because that phrase has been tossed around over the last several years. And Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what that really means, the missional church, in in some of the the basic sense uh, of what Keith is just talking about. Well, kind of jumping off of what just suggested, one of the 
sort of recurring themes in the in the conversation regarding the the missional church and missional theology is that those first three centuries of the church in some ways our culture today resembles more of that environment and that reality um, than some of the other periods of church history in, in the sense of, in which the church is pushed to the margins uh, we're, we're forced to 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 discover and re-articulate who are we who is christ who is he calling us to be and so this this missional theology really flows from that understanding that God is active in the world and is calling into uh, creation His people. You know, one of the one of the quotes from our our book from page thirty six quotes Emil Brunner, who who said, "The church exists by mission, as fire exists by burning. No mission, no church." And so, missional theology and the the idea of missional church really flows first from a God who was the first missionary who sent His Son who then sends the church into the world to be salt and light. And that is the starting point for understanding the church and its mission and, and for us practically today. Well, I'm glad you, you know, kind of clarify where that comes from. I think when people hear something with the word theology that they haven't heard before, they automatically assume it's something new when really it's something old. <laughs> Going back to the beginning here, it's not when you hear the words missional theology, like, oh no, what is this new thing that people are believing? But it, it's not new. It's a new phrase for something that... Uh, like like you mentioned, is something that happened long ago. We're talking today with Jason Beach, Keith Schwanz, and Libby Tedder-Hugis, who have co-authored the book, The Marks of the Missional Church, Ecclesial Practices for the Sake of the World. And let's talk about ecclesial practices. What does that mean? Let me respond to that by telling you a story. Uh, one of the stories that we tell in the book is of uh, Shane, who was a pastor of a congregation here in the Kansas City area uh, called New Beginnings. When Shane went to be the pastor of this congregation, he sat down and started looking at the financial situation from the church and discovered that they were investing about 41% of their money in their building. Mm. They actually had more commitment uh, financially to their building and to their pastoral staff than they, uh, they brought in the year before he came. And so the decisions that had been made prior to his arrival determined the practices of the church. And as I talked with him about that, he said he realized what his job was. He had to fill the seats with employed middle-class folks who could immediately begin helping them manage this huge mortgage. And the the deeper that he got uh, into this with the congregation, the more convicted he was that they had distorted the gospel. They were doing something that was totally contrary to what he understood when he read the Scripture. What they had to do to pay the bills had little to do with God's mission of reconciliation. And so he started leading the congregation in a time of repentance. Every week they would pray the Lord's Prayer. And they understood that phrase, forgive us our debts, in a way that uh, other congregations might not understand it. And they eventually decided to put the building on the market. It took them 15 months. Every week they were praying, forgive us our debts. Once they sold their building and they were able to purchase another building and they're debt-free now, it is just incredible the change that they have made in their community. Hmm. They are now able to respond to needs in their community. The building they have now is right on the backside of one of the high schools in, in their city. And there is a ministry who shares their building that 
is involved with about 100 high school kids. That ministry uh, meets in their facility, and they don't charge them any rent. Hmm. They have been able to, to adjust uh, what they do as a congregation. So it lines up, it matches with who they are as people who are participating in God's mission. And I think that, I mean, that story hit home with me as someone who's been a part of many large suburban churches um, where that, I was like, oh yeah, that I've seen the budget, I see that numbers, and it doesn't quite hit home until you look at the flip side. And I feel like a lot of people outside the church have even noticed that kind of conflict of interest more than the people inside the church have. Uh, uh, John Dickerson wrote the book, The Great Evangelical Recession. And in there, he has a chapter where he talks about uh, the evangelical church too often uh, is, um, is guilty of a, a dollar-centric ministry. And because of uh, the decisions that we have made that cost hundreds, uh, thousands, millions of dollars, uh, we end up investing and, and doing things that have nothing to do with God's mission. They may be good things, but it is not furthering God's mission. Uh, mission. So Dickerson talks about uh, a dollar uh, deformity of the gospel. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Libby, uh, let's talk a little bit more about what the ecclesial practices and um, you know, talk a little about this, com- this thought of communal versus the individualistic. Sure. So to just simply break down what ecclesial means um, or ecclesiology, it just is the study of the church, the theology of the church, what makes the church the church. So when we use that phrase, basically what we're talking about is what are just some really simple or not so simple, depending on how it looks, but what are some actual rhythms and practices that the church can begin to, to live into together for the sake of God's mission in the world? And so, um, you know, if you walk into any... Christian bookstore these days, or browse the Christian um, genres on Amazon.com or any other booksellers, when you go to the particular genre of literature that has to do with devotion or with spiritual formation, you are most likely to find quite a bit of literature and a lot of books dedicated to the individual pursuit of faith, kind of how do I as a Christian relate to Jesus as one person, and what does that mean for me and myself and I? Um, But this trend can be detrimental to the overall health of the Church. It's not that um, relating well to God individually doesn't matter, it just matters more that we're doing that in the context of our faith community. Mm. And so um, we really, as co-authors, were looking for a way to create a book um, and write a book that would help um, contradict that individualistic trend and provide the context for um, relating to God within thriving communities of faithful people who are journeying together. So to counter that trend, um, we wrote a book, um, and and we're really looking for ways that the Church could into God's mission very practically, very intentionally, with a lot of thought and a lot of action. Um, and so that's where that tagline comes from. And we really hope that these practices that we've suggested within the book um, will help spur kind of communal formation among God's people. Um, and several of the people that have subsequently read the book since it's been published um, and, and reviewed it have commented that they've been, they've been literally moved to pray mm-hmm. as they've been reading the books because we have prayers written into the actual structure of the book. 
Um, and we really hope that this isn't just another book to read, but that it becomes an invitation for communities of faith to kind of get into what it means to be missional. Um, and one of our reviewers even said that it's a book that you can't merely read. It's a book that's meant to be practiced, prayed, and pondered in the company of others. Mm. Jason, what are some of those uh, practices, and what you know in the in, in doing these practices? What are what are they really doing? Yeah, well, you know, uh, to kind of jump off what what Libby just said, and to connect it with what we were speaking of earlier in terms of the the marks of the church, what we see the the practices to be are ways in which those you know, I think Libby said earlier, we hang our hats on these. These are these are markers for us to help us articulate what the church is. And the practices are really the ways in which we seek to embody those marks and actually live them out. Um, I, I, when I talk about this, I try to use a, the illustration of, of marriage. There are things I love to do by myself. Uh, I love to go out and, and take hikes. I love to do photography by myself. That's just activities that I enjoy. But as a married person, there are also uh, things that I love to do with my spouse. And when uh, when my wife and I stood, you know, in front of one another on our wedding day and made those vows, a covenant was made, an identity was formed of Jason and Regan, and that is going to stand no matter what. But uh, to live out that covenant, there are, there are practices that we do together which embody that covenant that's been made. So we mm. we go on dates together. We uh, we we take walks in the, in the forest particularly on sunny days in Portland, <laughs> whenever we can get them together. And uh, th- that practice of doing those things together actually flows from the covenant that was made, but it also helps shape and form that covenant as we live them out. So in the same way, you know, we see some of the practices that we've spoken about in the book, uh, the way, even the way the book is structured, lists the four marks, and then from that, some practices that help embody those, things like prayer and searching the scriptures and so forth. So uh, I think trying to make that connection then with the marks, but it's not just theory. It's here's how the church embodies those marks. Uh, so that really, what we say we are, aligns with how we live. And I think it's important that uh, the practices align with the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, several years ago, I was reading in Galatians 2 and, and uh, have pondered uh, this one story several times since. And uh, when Peter had gone from Jerusalem up to Antioch, uh, he was very free to participate with uh, the Gentiles in in this multicultural setting in in Antioch. And it wasn't until some of his buddies from Jerusalem came up to Antioch that he ended up in the corner with his friends and totally ignored the Gentiles who just days before he had been having meals with. Mm. And when Paul confronted him, Paul said to Peter, you are out of alignment with the gospel. So one of the things that we do in the book, The Marks of the Missional Church, is to talk about how the practices of the Christian Church can be in alignment with the very gospel that we proclaim. Let me give you an example. It was in a chapter that Jason wrote uh, on Scripture. As evangelicals, we believe very strongly in the authority of Scripture. However, I have been in many evangelical worship services where the scriptures are never read. Something is out of sync. So one of the things that we try to do in the book is to help uh, folks not only explore these practices, but to also look at how these practices can help bring us into alignment with the gospel that we believe and the gospel that we proclaim. Mm. Jason, let's talk about uh, 
you know, within worship, one of the practices, um, you know, benediction. I know that's something that mm-hmm. some, I mean, I remember growing up and, and there was always in the bulletin at the bottom, there was going to be a benediction. Um, and, uh, you know, some churches still do that. I know you, you practice that at Eden Community and some churches have just gone away from that. Talk a little bit about, um, you know, that yeah. benediction. You know, that, that where it means go- a good word. It's a blessing. Mm-hmm. And um, when we give a benediction, it is as though we receive it from the Lord and we take it with us and it's transforming in our lives. And one of the ways that we wanted to, as Libby was saying, this book is meant to be read, prayed and practiced together. And so by one way that we thought to encourage that was uh, to really include an element of worship or shared practical spirituality together in the form of a, of, of a benediction of a blessing. And so we, uh, we ended each chapter with a blessing that again is meant to be read together um, in a group. So I'll read one here that, comes from chapter 13, a grand narrative, feasting on the scriptures together. And uh, after talking about that practice of listening and reading scripture in community, uh, we offered this benediction. May God, who has spoken and continues speaking, form you through the word of the Lord, planted deep in your heart, so that your life in Christ tells God's story of love. Amen. 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 We're talking about the book, The Marks of the Missional Church, Ecclesial Practices for the Sake of the World. We have the co-authors with us today from all across the country. Jason Veach, who's a pastor here in Portland. Lydia Tedder-Hugas, who is uh, a, pa- a pastor and planning a missional community in Casper, Wyoming. And also uh, Pastor Keith Schwanz, who is in Kansas City. The book can be purchased uh, from storyandpress.com. And... Let's talk about the the four um, kind of the four marks that you guys do break down uh, here in the book, and we're going to talk about them each individually: um, apostolic, Catholic, holy, and one. Um, and also, let's, t- let's talk about the collect. Libby, why don't you start off with that? Yeah, absolutely. So, in the same way that Jason named for us a, a, a good word as a blessing to um, take with us whenever we leave being gathered as God's people. There's a particular way that worship services have been um, begun through a prayer called a collect, and it essentially just acts as an invitation. Mm. It's really just kind of a very short, compact prayer that begins by articulating an attribute of God before taking um, a turn to petition God to act within God's character. And so this book then, you know, offers offers these ways for us to together um, pray and offer acts of worship as a response to God. So um, I'd like to offer the following collect from um, chapter four on page forty-two um, as a way to put into practice our hopes for this book. God of unconditional love, who relentlessly offers life to all, do not count our brokenness against us, but make us a new creation so that we may effectively serve as ambassadors of your reconciling mission. Bathed in divine love, we praise your name. Amen. Amen. Um, And so, with that being said, this was a collect that we used as we defined in Chapter 4 really what apostolic means. So, we kind of have done this whole reversal of the order of the marks, and we're beginning with apostolic. And very simply, the word apostle means sent. So the first apostles were sent by Jesus to make disciples of all nations. And um, when the, the Nicene Creed identified the church as apostolic, it was the Christian community, community's affirmation 
of the sense nature of God's Church on a mission initiated by God, um, commissioned by Christ, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the, the Great Commission, if you listen to it, there's all of these action words, go, baptize, tell. And um, when we identify the Church as marked as apostolic, it's another way of naming that the Church is sent out by God, because I believe it was Jason that said it earlier, God is a missionary God. God is a sending God. So when we say that the Church is apostolic, um, what, we're, what we're naming is that we are getting to participate in God's mission um, that proclaims the good news for the whole world. So the language of Paul in the second letter to the Corinthians is that we are compelled by the love of Christ to be ambassadors, sent people of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And, and Keith, why don't you, do you have a story to share with us? I've got a way, yeah, I've got a story that will illustrate what Libby has been talking about. About uh, an hour northeast of Kansas City, there is a place called Hideaway Lakes. Uh, It was intended to be uh, a camp, a a resort place where people from the city could go out on weekends and on holidays. And uh, the folks who developed this had hundreds of uh, campsites. You could purchase the campsites, you could... Uh, put uh, a camp trailer there. Um, unfortunately, for whatever reason, it never took off. And instead of hundreds of people out there on weekends, there are about 50 campsites that um, where people are living year-round. Hmm. Um, I've been out there with uh, some friends who have a ministry out there. Um, uh, one of my friends, Jim, the first time he went out there, got there just as there was a knife fight. Uh, instead of being this nice place where you can take your families on weekends, this has turned out to be a place where there are, are drug deals. There, mm-hmm. There's just all kinds of stuff going on. And I, I don't know that it would be accurate to say that, that there are gangs out there, but there are definitely rival groups of men. Mm-hmm. And Jim shows up this first time uh, just as this knife fight breaks out. Uh, That didn't scare him away, Uh, he and and the man that was with him. Eventually discovered that there are about 40 kids living in this environment that is just really rough. So they started establishing relationships with these families, and when vacation Bible school time came around, they made arrangements to bring them into the church. Somewhere along the line, they really felt convicted that if they were to be apostolic, they needed to go to where the people were. Mm. So rather than, than making arrangements uh, to transport these kids into the church, they decided to take the church out there to Hideaway Lakes. There are picnic p- pavilions uh, through the whole area, and they received permission to use one of the pavilions. And that year... They took all of the children from their church, all of the workers, and they went out to Hideaway Lakes, and they had uh, vacation Bible school right there uh, in the pavilion closest to the entrance. That led to Bible studies. What really happened, however, was that their presence in this community brought peace. Mm. Um, Some of the, the people who had been fighting because of the presence of these Christians in this place, they reconciled. Um, a story that Jim told me that uh, I, I just love to, to um, think about, it was Easter uh, two or three years ago. 
when Danny and Mike sat together in church. Danny and Mike were on opposite uh, sides of the rivalry. And there was uh, one time, Jim told me, when they actually had to get in between them and push them apart. But there has been a transformation in the relationship between Danny and Mike, and there has been a transformation in this community just because the church went there. Mm. And so on this Easter Sunday morning, uh, they greeted each other during the time when they were passing the peace of Christ. They walked together to the front to receive communion. That never would have happened if the congregation had insisted on bringing the kids out of the community to their church. Mm. That happened only because this congregation recognized that they had been sent by God, and they went, and it was their presence that helped bring the peace. Jason and, and Libby, as you guys are both church planters, and you know, besides the fact that you have, have written this book, <laughs> you know, you get this concept just in the fact of, of you responding to God's call for you to go um, and be present somewhere other than your home and, and do the Lord's work there. But for you guys who, who are who are shepherds over over the other believers there, how do you try to convey this concept to them and really get them to, um, you know, as, as your church engage and not just ignore or avoid these issues or, you know, the community or whatever the hard stuff is and, and really, um, you know, head there, attack that instead of ignoring or go away? Well, I mean, uh, for us, and I, I think I don't want to speak for Libby on this, but mm-hmm. I, I think there is a preve- prevalent pressure within particularly evangelicalism and particularly in the church planting conversation uh, that you really need to have a, a strategic plan and ha- really have everything kind of set. And then you go in and you, you kind of drop in and do your thing. And then you kind of say, well, Lord, hope you go with us. And, uh, you know, what I found is is in, in our community, you have plans. Of course, you you seek to be organized and intentional and all of those things. But I think the way that, that we've tried to model it, and I think would be true for any community, whether it's brand new or existing, whether you're a pastor or just an involved and engaged Christian in your, in your community, is to take a posture of listening and to take a posture that says, um, Lord, we start looking around and saying, Lord, where are you actually sending us? What are you calling us to do? And and part of that will emerge out of research and out of conversations in neighborhoods and, um, you know, partnerships will spring up that you never planned for. Um, but I, I think that's one of the ways that, that I have sought to try to live this out and would encourage others is um, hold on, you know, do your, do your planning and think intentionally, but then also hold loosely enough to them that when the spirit guides you in a certain way, and it sends you into a place or situation, particularly if you didn't plan it and it's uncomfortable, that could very well be the prompting of the spirit that's trying to send you mm. uh, into some into a new uh, new reality. Mm. Yeah, that's that's great. That posture of both humility and listening, I think, is a big deal. And in considering kind of this idea of being sent, um, this idea of reversing the oh, we'll let folks come to us mentality. Um, I feel really blessed as a kind of an entrepreneur with this missional community here because we don't have some of the baggage that um, established churches do regarding um, kind of this need for people to come to them. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example. The way that um, the table, the community that I lead, really has come to life is through 
is anchored in a common meal that um, my husband and myself and our housemates have been co-hosting together here in Casper. We're, not, we're into our fourth season. And uh, there was a person that visited one time who um, was pretty skeptical about kind of religion and religious structure um, and, and, and began to come and join us for food and fresh soup and bread every week and said to the friends that brought them, you know, I don't, I don't really know what I think about religion, but if I understood religion well, it would look like Super Tuesdays. And, um, and so I think out of that need in our community where we have found people are longing for belonging, they're longing for friendship, and they're longing for safety, that's where the table has been born. It's been born out of the sense that we are being sent to our neighborhood to find where our neighbors currently are. Um, such as a quick example of what that looks like. Hmm. Let's move on now and, uh, and talk about um, the word Catholic, which, if people aren't familiar, automatically assume the Catholic Church. You know, I know some churches um, that aren't Catholic, when they're saying the creed, will even take out, you know, the Catholic part of the creed and just put Church Universal or, you know, something else in because people get confused. Talk about exactly what, what that is. Sure. Yeah, there's definitely a way in which that word might be... Um, a little confusing or in some senses archaic, but um, Catholic with a small C mm-hmm. refers to um, the church at large, the church universal. So when we use that word, we're not just talking about kind of the current global church or the current church across the world. We're talking about um, the church throughout history and currently. And so simply it means universal and um, what we're getting at with the roots of calling the church Catholic is that the Church's doors are open to anyone who receives the gifts of God's Spirit and salvation through Jesus. So you don't have to fit a certain mold, you don't have to be a certain gender, you don't have to be a certain um, nationality to be a part of God's Church. Everyone is adopted into the family of God. And so when we name that mark of being a Catholic Church, what we're talking about there is that we're participating in this mission that is open and available to all classes and cultures, all ages and genders, all nationalities and races. So that's what we mean when we say Catholic. Jason, talk a little bit more about, about I guess, some you know practical and, and stories about what that what that looks like. You know, one of the stories we told in the book um, that helps kind of embody this mark of Catholicity of universality is uh, actually from Pastor Gary Tribbett and his wife Linda. Um, Gary is the pastor of Clear. Clear Creek Church here in the Portland area. And, um, you know, several years ago, they became aware of, painfully aware of the issue of human trafficking, which is a scourge upon, of course, the world. But we're increasingly becoming aware of uh, the the horrible nature of this in our own backyards and in our own neighborhoods. And Portland, unfortunately, is near the top of that list, mm-hmm. being located on the I-5 corridor here on the West Coast. Um, they encountered a woman in their who encountered their congregation who had been rescued from human trafficking here in the neighborhood. They took her in, they learned her story, and they learned firsthand the heartbreak, the pain, the rejection uh, that came from being um, imprisoned, literally, in, in this lifestyle. And they ministered to this woman, and that that uh, encounter changed their lives, ended up changing the course of their, their even of their church. And Pastor Gary began to wrestle with the scriptures um, and, and to do so, again, with the community together. And if you've ever read Scripture, you know that you have one recurring theme is justice, that God desires that things that are broken 
be repaired and made right again. And their hearts and minds just kept being drawn to this issue of, of human trafficking um, and beyond just sort of the rescue, but then also beginning to, to be drawn into what would it look like to help prevent human trafficking and to be aware enough of our neighborhoods that we could be engaged to protect the vulnerable. And so one such event that flowed from that passion and from their own community was this event called Dress for Freedom. Um, they were given uh, many uh, wedding or excuse me, prom dresses, just nice dresses were donated. And they thought, you know, what would it look like for us to be able to put on an event and connect with vulnerable young women in, in a, a vulnerable neighborhood and uh, bring them in where we could pamper them, give them uh, a makeover, um, be able to give them a dress, um, make them help them feel loved, accepted, valued. And um, so they had about, I think the first time, about 38 girls show up to this, many of them from um, very vulnerable situations, many of them from foster care. And uh, this has now become an annual event. But at the event, they always have a couple of survivors tell their story. Mm. And uh, at that first one, one of, one of the women stood up and told her own story of at one time being rejected, abused, um, you know, devalued. And then how through the love of Christ and the love of, of his sent people to church, she was restored. And uh, they even ended up helping this woman put on her own wedding and celebrate mm. full restoration in her life. And that uh that that story just sparked a, a, a beautiful um you know flow of new works and new new organizations even here in the Portland area which have now been joined uh by many different traditions and Christian communities which really again helps illustrate even further this this idea of universal that we're we're even coming together uh despite our differences for, for the sake of for the sake of others and Keith and Libet, do you think that that part of this Separation. I know it's it's been both, but but talking about really the need to come back together. Do you think it's been more um, based on just division within the church, or the people within the church not you know being concerned with what we talked about before? You know, needing to get the middle class families and the money in to to pay for the building, and so we haven't been reaching out as much as we should. Both are obviously problems, but do you think um, you know how they contributed to the fact that now we really need to address this issue of reestablishing this universal church for everyone. It seems to me um, that what you've hinted at, Paul, is um, a growing awareness, a growing hunger among Christians um, not to be divided anymore. There are so many, and, you know, we'll get to this kind of as we progress through the marks, as we get down to what um, what unity looks like, you know, kind of the result of this missional this missional effort, but when it comes to the universality of the Church, there is something to the beauty of teaming up with um, Church traditions, Church denominations that don't represent our own um, as a way to understand um, that the mission, again, is God, not ours. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't, as individual churches or denominations, own God's mission. We are participating in the mission of God, and it just seems like there's an understanding and awareness. It might be kind of at the growing edges of our consciousness, but um, an awareness that we can't accomplish this alone. So if we can't, why not unify with other Christians? Why not find and band together with the universal global Church of God um, to help usher in this mission? Mm-hmm. And I think that it expands beyond that uh, to those who, at this point, don't claim to be Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm currently working on a book project with my brother Swanee, 
and um, he lived for seven years in Kenya. And the last four days that uh, Swanee and Karen were in Kericho, Kenya, they had dinner with two Hindu families, a Sikh family, and a Muslim family. These were people that they established a relationship with. Uh, they would go to their homes for dinner. They would come to Swanee and Karen's home for dinner. And Swanee and Karen's position was, these are God's children. And so they would include them in their lives. They would include them a as being um, part of God's creation. Now, the sad thing is that there were church leaders who took ex exception with that. Why is it that on the last four nights that you are in Caricho, you don't have dinner with any of your Christian friends? I, I think it's sad, but my own experience growing up in the 1950s and 1960s was that uh, there seemed to be this fear of associating with people who are not part of my tradition. Um, I am refreshed to uh, to hear younger folks today who don't have the same kind of fear that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a healthy thing, mm -hmm. and I think that is giving expression to what God wants for us as the Church. Mm. I would agree with that. And Keith, would you end this little segment with, with a benediction as we as we finish up here with, with the Catholic mark? Uh, one of the benedictions that we use in the book says, May God who graciously welcomes all people with open arms. Enlarge your heart so you can warmly receive, in the name of Christ, those who need refuge, shelter, and care. Amen. Amen. We're talking today about the book, The Marks of the Missional Church, Ecclesial Practices for the Sake of the World. We're talking with the co-authors, Jason Veach, who's here in Portland, Keith Schwanz in Kansas City, and Libby tedder Hugus, who is in Casper, Wyoming. I'm Paul Van Sickle, and thank you for listening today to KKPZ 1330, The Truth. And we're now going through the marks, and, and we are now talking about uh, holy. And Libby, before we will you define that, could you please open up with one of the collects from the book on this? Absolutely. Here it goes. Ever-speaking God, whose voice echoes through the great story of the Bible, may we hunger and thirst for your word, so that as you speak, we may be nourished for the life of faith. We ask this through Jesus Christ, the eternal and living word, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. That particular collect comes from chapter 13, um, a grand narrative feasting on the scriptures together. So the next particular mark um, that comes after apostolic, after Catholic, is the mark of holy or holiness. So, you know, this particular mark comes out of the sentiment, out of the universality of God's Church. And a simple way to understand holy is to understand it as being set apart. Um, God calls the Church out of kind of the world's way of doing things, the world's patterns that tend to lend itself towards selfishness and into the pattern of holiness, of participating in God's mission. I love the way that Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. And I think that holiness is rooted in this love. Um, as Christians, we're really kind of called to live countercultural life. 
everything as we read in the arc of Scripture in God's reign of love is really kind of toppy-turvy. It's upside down. It's backwards from what the world expects. And it really calls us to the kind of love that we see in Jesus. It's a self-emptying kind of love that is literally willing to lay down its life for others. Um, and, And like Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart a love that empowers the powerless. Um, I think this kind of holiness is rooted in um, what we heard about in the story out of um, Portland and and meeting the need for justice for those who had been trafficked in the sex slavery. Um, This kind of holiness gives a voice to the voiceless, the ones who are constantly ignored in our world, the ones who are trampled um, as lower than dirt. And so this this holiness, this mark of the Church, becomes... um, Really, it becomes like a lighthouse um, to the world and becomes the beacon by which people recognize that God is at work, that God's love is real, and that God's love really can transform. Mm. Amen. Jason, do you have a story that can kind of help us illustrate and get a hold on what's going on with holy? Yeah, one of the practices that we you know, placed underneath this mark of holiness was uh, reading or feasting on the scriptures. And uh, the conviction there is that we read the Bible not just so we have more knowledge or that so we can win arguments. But <laughs> we read it, we're shaped by it so that we can live out this life of holiness. And um, we encountered this story out of Petaluma, California, Hillside Church. Um, one morning uh, or early afternoon, right after worship, a, a couple named Sandy and Bart, middle-aged church-going couple, went to their favorite bagel shop as they did every Sunday to have lunch. And um, that morning, the sermon had been on compassion. And uh, they went to their bagel shop as they always did. And this particular day, because of that exposure to Scripture, their, their senses were uh, heightened. Their awareness was heightened. They saw a man standing on the corner holding a sign, you know, asking for help. And, you know, where many people would take that first step and, and offer, here's a few bucks or whatever. They felt prompted by the Spirit to say, would you come have lunch with us? And uh, it's really that embodying of compassion to be mm-hmm. with and uh, he said, yeah, I would love to. Do you mind if my wife comes? She ended up being across the way at another corner. And they sat down and they had lunch, had bagels together, the four of them. They discovered that this couple had just lost their jobs. Mm. But more than that, we're living in a forested area not far from that bagel shop, around, along with about 30 other people. And uh, they realized this was a divine appointment, that just as in the book of Acts, God was um, calling them to this time and place to minister and um So kind of urged on from this exposure to Scripture, not just that Sunday, but something their church had been doing together for the past few years, which was to read through in a strategic way the narrative of the Bible, to be immersed in the story of God. Um, That was just ringing in their ears and in their hearts, and they just found themselves not just reading it, but beginning to live it out together. And so they they followed this couple back to the forest, and they, they met these folks, and they began each week starting to take uh, food and and you know additional shelter and blankets to these folks and that again just began to expand into ad- advocacy for the for those without shelter um, addiction programs foster parenting programs and then eventually every Sunday morning at about five a.m. a group would go out to the bridges of their city and just minister to people and all prompted by this ecclesial practice of together reading and reflecting on the story of God um, a powerful really ex- illustration then of holiness, um, not just on the pages of the book, mm-hmm. but li- being lived out in the world. 
that's an important part, and it's what I like about the the practical nature of what you're talking about. Because for so many, I think for so long, it, it's just either a a dream or a goal, and not understanding fully what holiness really is or all about versus the the, the legalistic approach mm-hmm. to to holiness of oh, if I just am following on the rules, and that must mean I'm holy, and you know, kind of what what was seen even in the Old Testament. But now down to the final uh, uh, mark that you guys talk about in the book, one. Uh, Libby, talk about oneness. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of cool um, spending time thinking about the way that each of these marks, um, the sentiment of God's Church, the universality of God's Church, and the holiness of God's Church, then really funnels into the unity of God's Church. Mm. Um that, that unity becomes a sign for understanding the nature of how God is at work in the world. And unity, if you think about it, again, is just as flipped upside down, countercultural, as um, apostolicity, catholicity, and holiness. Unity requires, literally, like the scriptures say, bearing together with one another in love. And so this, this particular mark, this particular sign, um, becomes the manifestation of um, really recognizing when God is up to something in the world, God's people unify around it. And um, it becomes this clear witness to both people who have found their way inside of God's family and those who are still outside of God's family. They look at it and they say, oh, that's why why God loves. That's how God loves. Um, God really is who God says God is. And, um, and so this unity then becomes really the answer to the Lord's Prayer, that um, the kingdom of God is here and it's being answered on this earth at this time in our very practical ways. And so as co-authors with this book, we really kind of felt that um, the waiting and watching world is going to know who we are, like that old chorus says. They're going to know that we are Christians by our love by the distinctive aroma that arises out of us as a community. When people, when people see us at work and they smell the, the beauty of God's love um, kind of at blossoming in the soil of the gospel, they're going to say, ah, that must be God because it can only be God. Mm-hmm. Keith, do you have a story that can kind of can, can help illustrate that from, from something that's happened? Yeah, uh, a story that will not only illustrate that, but take it a, a step farther. Mm-hmm. Uh, James is a pastor of Sunlight Church in Blaine, Minnesota in the Twin Cities area, this congregation has about 30 members. Out of their church, 30 members, they distribute 10,000 pounds of food every Monday and 10,000 pounds of food every Saturday. That's incredible. Yeah. 30 people engaged like that. They call it manna market. Uh, the interesting part of this story is that a whole new group of leaders has emerged from the working poor who benefit from this. Mm-hmm. And uh, James now is called pastor by these hundreds of people who, uh, who will show up on Monday afternoon and Saturday afternoon to get some food to help feed their family. And these are people who do not attend the church on Sunday morning. And yet there is a oneness, there is a unity that has developed between this congregation of 30 and this community that has developed around the Mana Market. Uh, I watched a video clip. There was a television station in the Twin Cities area that had a feature uh, on this particular ministry, 
and there was just a few seconds with an atheist who said, I don't believe anything that these Christians believe, but they're doing the right thing, mm. and I want to be involved with what they're doing. Um, I have thought a lot about that since James told me that story. And I think that uh, those of us in the Church can learn from this. If it looks like the Kingdom, then the Church needs to be involved, even if it is not our program. Um, We need to become partners with anybody who cares for the poor, who nurtures children. Uh, I've got a friend who is a pastor in in St. Joseph, Missouri, and uh, he's got a, a larger congregation. Uh, he spent about three months, and he went to uh, 21, 22 different nonprofits in the St. Joe area. And he selected these because they had a mission that looked very much like the kingdom of God. Well, the result is that uh, in their church, they don't have a food pantry. They don't do clothes distribution. They're not doing their own thing. He has mobilized his congregation to become partners with these other agencies in St. Joe, and they are living into the kingdom pattern as they assist these other folks who have a mission that is very similar to their own. So when we talk about oneness, we're not only talking about who we are as the Church. I think we need to open our arms wider, and we need to be one with anything that looks like what God describes in Scripture. Mm. So we are the people of God in this day, and we need to be people who are on God's mission and look like what we see in the, in the person of Jesus, and look like what we see in the early church in Acts. Uh, we just need to do that whenever we can. Amen. And there are so many opportunities for that to happen and again, to be able to to bring Christ with us into those situations to to minister in in his name and then build relationships with with other people. Um, it, yeah, it, that's how we that's how we grow. That's how we move. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed talking with all three of you today about this book that is uh, the marks of the missional church ecclesial practices for the sake of of the world. And uh, again, Keith, where can people purchase the book? And um, again, kind of recapping how people should read this book and, and how it should be used. Uh, people can get this book anywhere uh, that they typically um, will buy the books. Uh, book retailers will have it. You can get it at Amazon.com. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do with this book is to provide a resource for people to gather around and talk about these things how the practices of, of their faith uh, can further God's mission in this world. Mm-hmm. And Jason, just as we end today, uh, I think it's appropriate as we've done through, throughout our time together, through these sections, just kind of end with, with a benediction, um, a, a blessing for those that, that are listening and uh, you know, upon us as well. Yes, absolutely. This comes from chapter 19, uh, a, title, a chapter entitled Service to God, Worshiping Together. And the benediction, the blessing goes this way. May God, who bathes creation with a holy presence, make you, make us, a pleasing offering to God so that your very being will fill the world with the sweet aroma of Christ. Amen. 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 Again, Jason, Keith, Libby, thank you so much for joining us today here on KKPZ. 
1330 The Truth. Again, the book is called The Marks of the Missional Church, Ecclesial Practices for the Sake of the World, available through Story and Press. And you can find more at storyandpress.com or go search for it online through Amazon or at other retail stores. This has been The Pulse of Portland with Paul Van Sickle. Email comments, questions, and topic ideas to publicaffairs at kkpz.com.